Good morning and welcome to this podcast from our Easter service at Generations Church. We had such an amazing time. We had a few technical difficulties, some audio issues right in the beginning. So I'm going to spend about a minute here just sort of catching you up on the details before we join our original broadcast. It's a little scratchy for the first 10 or 11 minutes, but it gets better after that. Just hang with us. You know, for the past couple of weeks, we've been exploring what it means for followers of Jesus to actually walk in his footsteps in our series. And we've looked at a couple of events that occurred in Jesus' life and how his actions give us a vibrant model for how we can make more Christ-like choices in whatever life throws at us. How we can, or as we'd like to say, be more Jesus-y. It's not a real word, but we, we think it should be. It's a word around here. We want to be more Jesus-y. So, so first, what we did a couple of weeks ago is we looked at this scene in Jesus' life when he was being tempted of the devil. The devil came to tempt him while he was fasting in the wilderness, tried to get him off of his path that God got, had him on, tried to get him on a different path. And we discovered how this is, these are temptations that we still have to say no to every day, getting off of our path. Then last week was Palm Sunday. And we checked out this amazing scene where Jesus makes this entry into Jerusalem. And we discovered that there's two kinds of kings. There's a Caesar and there's a Christ. And we have a choice to follow in the ways of Caesar or the way of Christ, the way of Rome, the way of empire, or the kingdom. And uh, there's this way, which is the, the, the way of power and the, the way of conquering, the way of winning above all. And then there's this Jesus-y way, which leads from love and humility. Today, we are going to look at some of the most incredible steps that Jesus ever took. We're following in his footsteps. The most incredible steps he ever took were the steps he took out of the grave after rising from the dead. These are pretty incredible. And we're going to ask, is this something like we can actually follow in his footsteps? Would we do that? Or do we just kind of stand to the side and applaud and yay, this is way to go. And, you know, and then go eat our Easter ham. Um, no, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to discover that, that we get to follow him out of the grave. And if we do that, how do we follow him in the right direction? What impact does that have on our day-to-day life? Okay, if I make a lot of food references today, you know, it's been Lent for 40 days. And a lot of people have been fasting, we've been fasting for weeks. And so uh, I'm looking forward to eating. And so that's, I just have food references today. Hallelujah. I want want to start today with a scripture that sums up so beautifully to me the impact of the resurrection. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. It says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Praise God. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your sting? Because Christ is risen. He's keeping you on your toes. There you go. Now, here's the thing. This is great news. But central to the Christian faith for the last 2,000 years is this group of believers who actually believe that this victory over death, over the sting of death, does not just extend to that one morning when Christ rose from the dead. But it actually has way more far-reaching implications than that. And, and so that the sting of death, the power of death, somehow Jesus has disarmed it on behalf of all of humanity. Now, if this is potentially huge news, right? You could, you could call this very good news. That's what, in fact, what the Bible calls it, good news. So I'm going to look at what one, one writer has to say in the book of Hebrews. This is one of my 
favorite passages in the whole Bible. There's just so much good truth packed into this one little passage. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to these things. They'll also be on the screen. But here in Hebrews 2, it says this. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us. We're the children with flesh and blood. Everybody here has flesh and blood. He too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity. In other words, Jesus came down and became a human. He was God. He left heaven, became a a human being. So that, here's the purpose of the whole thing, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil. (laughs) And by doing that, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by what? By their fear of death death. That's a weird phrase. There's a lot of profound stuff packed into this, this little passage here. But for time's sake, we're, we're going we're gonna to move it along so I can get you to lunch. We're going to highlight just a couple of things here. First, notice, notice on here, who's the one that Scripture claims had the power of death? The enemy, the, de- the devil. That's kind of weird. The devil had, had power over death. And so the power of death is synonymous with the power of the devil. Jesus came to break this stranglehold that the devil holds. Secondly, I want to point out here, this is an ancient scripture. This is like 2,000 years old, very old stuff. However, it points directly at something that is very current, that is very relevant to us today. It is a profound philosophical truth that the whole world Christian and otherwise, talks about today. It is the human condition itself that the human race is enslaved by this ultimate fear, this fear of death. This fear of death. And then what Scripture keeps pointing us to throughout the New Testament, as you can read in the writers and the apostles and the church leaders, they keep pointing us to this mysterious fact that something has happened through the sacrifice of Jesus and his love for us. Something has freed us from this. We're told over in 1 John 4.18, you can put that up there, that perfect love drives out fear, that there is no fear in love. Perfect love, not just any love, but perfect love drives out fear. So there is some kind of mysterious, like, inverse relationship between fear and love, right? The more perfect love, the less fear. Fear drives out fear. And, and the crucifixion and the resurrection the Bible says, are the ultimate expressions of love. This is the ultimate, unsurpassable expression of love. You can't get a greater expression of love than a God who is just so far above. It just would blow our mind. We can't even even really fathom how far above God is. You know, we're we're like like a little rock would be to us. And and God comes down to and speaks rock language with the rocks. And he he talks with us and he lives with us and he dies for us. And he, this unsurpassable generosity, this love, you can't get a greater expression of that. So that means that the resurrection of Jesus is the most powerful force in the universe that we've ever seen to drive out our greatest fear. If you have the greatest fear, you need the, the greatest expression of love, don't you? So the, our ultimate fear is this fear of death, the greatest expression of love, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It's what, this fear of death is what keeps humanity in bondage, though, whether they realize it or not. So what I want to see this morning over the next few minutes is I want us to discover the difference this makes in our life. 
This isn't just a, a religious truth or kind of interesting something we recite. There's some difference this makes in our life if we receive it, if we believe it and walk in this. It changes everything, especially for people who want to walk in Jesus' footsteps, if we want to walk in Jesus' footsteps. Now, there's been a number, all kinds of, of philosophers and psychologists, sociologists, and theologians who have argued this, that our fear of death has, is actually one of the most, if, if not the most, um, powerful and destructive force in our life. This fear of death, it's always there. And most people are unaware of it most of the time, of this, this constant fear, this, this constant dread of our mortality because it's always there. You ever been under so much stress? You ever gone through a season of your life, you're so much stress, you don't really think about the stress anymore, it's just there, and you don't really know it until it's gone? And then you realize, ooh, I've been really stressed out. You ever go on a vacation, you don't realize how stressed out you were until you got there, right? You ever gone to the beach, sat back on the thing, and as soon as you're relaxed, you just start bawling? Is that just me? Am I saying too much? I'm having a little therapy session with you guys. Thank you. I appreciate it. Ah, been really stressed out. There, there was a book I was reading. Uh, I've been reading by, um, he's a Christian writer, he's a great Christian writer, wrote a lot of books, but he's, he's also a professor of psychology at a university, Dr. Richard Beck. And he says, he, he, in this book of his uh, called The Slavery of Death, he talks about how powerful the fear of death is and how it's ultimately what motivates all of our sin, what all of our, our bad choices, this fear of death. And he calls it the single most driving force in our life. And, it, and the thing is, this fear of death, it's always driving us in the wrong direction. It always drives us in the wrong direction. We live in this, under the shadow of death. We're always aware of our mortality, whether we're aware of it or not. It's always there. And some of us, you know, react by becoming obsessed with it. We kind of lean in. We become obsessed. We watch a lot of Walking Dead or something like that. But most people, most people try to forget about death because, let's face it, that's not like the most pleasant sub, you know, uh, subject to think about. So we forget it. We try to think about it. We, we, we flood it with distractions, you know, or whatever it is, ambition or things or, or friends or whatever it is. Or, or, or we try to medicate it away, if you know what I mean, you know, in different ways. Because it's always there, our mortality. It's always there that the clock is ticking. It's always there, right? That we have a finite amount of time. And it creates, naturally, in human beings, an anxiety. And scholars like Dr. Beck and others have labeled this anxiety the scarcity mentality. The scarcity mentality. Now, you can get a really vivid picture of this scarcity mentality by looking at certain people, especially people who have actually gone through real times of scarcity, real trauma in their life. They've genuinely experienced real scarcity. Um, people who've been maybe on the verge of starvation before. Maybe you have a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent who've who made it through the Great Depression of the 1930s. And um, my grandparents would tell stories about what it was like uh, to, to survive with almost nothing to eat, right? Or to not have any money to buy anything. Or to, if you did have some money, there wasn't anything in the store to buy. These, these times. Um, Melissa's sweet grandma, Audrey, she's with Jesus now, but boy, she, we, we used to kind of tease because she had this wonderfully peculiar habit. Whatever much she ate, and she ate very little, but however much she ate, if there was a bite left, that if it was a, a bite of that little turkey sandwich, it'd get wrapped up and put back in the fridge, right? She's going to put that back in case, you know, because she might eat that for lunch 
or for later lunch, second lunch, or dinner, or whatever that was, you know, and whatever it was, it might be a bite of apple, but that was going back in the fridge. And so sometimes, you know, times of scarcity, you know, create good habits, just habits of, of being, saving and being careful, not wasting things. But very often what happens is some folks who have gone through periods of time where there wasn't enough food to go around, a good percentage of these folks uh, come out of that exhibiting this scarcity mentality, and they'll be constantly afraid that there won't be enough tomorrow. It might not be there tomorrow, and it won't even be necessarily a rational thing. Um, It's just so deeply seared into them. Really, it's a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, and because they went through this time of starvation, and their mind fixates on never being in that situation again. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you are that way. One sad effect of that is that we hoard, we ration, and then even the things that we do have, we can't enjoy any of them. The effect of those kind of folks is they can't enjoy any of it because everything's ra- you can't enjoy something that's wrapped up in fear. You know what I mean? You can't enjoy it. It sucks the joy right out of it. Now, next slide. For some folks, the scarcity mentality gets attached to a lot of different things. And so people will they'll cling to people, or they'll cling to money or cling to things because those things might, they might be gone tomorrow. And so they live in a world where they can't really enjoy anything because it might be gone. And that fear of death is always around the corner. That clock's always ticking, that dread. And so everything in life is filled with this attitude of, I've got I to get as much as possible right now. I've got to cling to, I've got to gather as much as I can, hang on to it. And the vast majority of these people are not even aware that this anxiety is driving them. They're not aware that they're really in bondage to this fear of death or that it's the devil who's got them in prison to it. This devil who's already been defeated, but he's still got them in prison to it. All they know is that they have this constant drive to get more, to get all they can right now, to grab as much as they can while they can, to cling and grasp whatever they can, because, you know, it's every man for himself. And so we want to have as many peak experiences as we can, many pleasures as we can, acquire as much wealth as we can, and get as much pleasure as we can and comfort as we can right now. Another effect this has, next slide, is it makes some folks obsessed with security. Some folks become security obsessed, or even to the point of paranoia, or to an extreme, you know, they'll be really into conspiracy theories or something like this. Because there's only so much to go around, and everyone else they feel like is in competition for the same resources. And it's a zero-sum game out there, right? Zero-sum. So it's every man for himself, and others are seen as competition. Everybody's seen as competition and a threat. And preserving this life is all that matters. And we worry about things that are outside of our control. All those, all those what-ifs. What if the economy tanks tomorrow and I, I lose the life that I'm accustomed to? What if I lose, you know, my house? What if I lose my car? What if? What if that young new employee at work, you know, takes over, replaces me? You know, what if I'm, I'm still looking for love and, and people find me less attractive compared to younger folks? What if people don't value me because I can't do what I used to do as well anymore? And, that, and, and this constantly, constantly just overrides our thinking. Next slide. The scarcity mentality is also at the root of all of our self-centeredness because it dulls our capacity to uh, be other-centric and to live with generosity, to be people of love, to be concerned with others, to care about others, have compassion for other people, to empathize with them, those who are disadvantaged. It short-circuits our call to live this 
generous life that Jesus has called us to because we can't be generous with things that we're clinging to. It's just impossible. You can't be generous with what you're clinging to. And in the attempt to grasp at everything we can get our hands on, it actually short-circuits our ability to experience the joy of life. We can't experience any joy. Because I'll tell you, anybody who has ever been set free from clinging will tell you that there is no joy like the joy of being generous. Amen? There's no joy like the joy of giving away. That is the recipe for living your best life right now. Uh, not, but the fear of death, even if we're not aware of it, it'll cut you off from doing this. Next slide. For some folks, this scarcity mentality is, is a worry that your, your best life has already passed you by. It's already passed you by. It's the fear of death expresses itself as FOMO. Everybody know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out, right? Yes. Fear of missing out. And this is something that plagues a lot of people, uh, you know, like entering middle age like me. I, I, I don't like to admit that, but, you know, everything's getting a little grayer and uh, things are a little looser. And it's just, it's happening. Can't stop it. But it's this worry, but it can happen to, at any age. It, it can happen across, across the spectrum. It's a worry that you've missed your chance. And these, these folks who are consumed by this live in a world of, oh, if onlys. What could have been? I could have been this. You know, it, it, if only I hadn't blown that audition, I'd be a rock star today. If only I had taken that job, I'd be somebody really important today. If only... If only I had made that shot in high school, I'd be a big shot, you know, somebody great today. I'd be a legend. If only, if only. But my life would have been significant. I could have amounted to something. But now I'm just living this mediocre life. And it's a, that's a very, very painful place to be. Uh, by the way, all of these, I just want to throw this out there. This is a little aside here. We're going to be talking about this in our home life groups this week. We were off last week, but we're back. Our home life groups are back this week. And so uh, if, you're, uh, if you haven't ever been to one of our home life groups, I encourage you to go check it out. We're, we have a great time. And we'll be talking about this sermon. It's a great time to get together. It's really, home life is where we really feel like spiritual growth really happens. It's, you know, this is, this is good, but honestly, you know, this is kind of like church light because we can't really talk together and get to know each other. Home life, spiritual growth happens. We encourage each other. We sharpen each other and we fellowship and we have a good time too. And we eat, so that's always good. <laughs> Let me tell you uh, uh, one area of life, next slide, where this scarcity mentality will absolutely cripple any chance you have at real joy, and that is in our relationships. Our relationships. There's this kind of romantic myth, and it's probably all over the world. I've only lived here, so I, I can't say for certain, but I know it's big here. I know it's a big American thing. It's this romantic myth, this sort of sleepless in Seattle myth that... Uh, it, it makes this idol out of romantic love. And romantic love is wonderful. Romantic love is great. But it, it can become this anxiety of, am I ever going to find my true love? Am I ever going to find it? Or did I miss out on my, my one true love? Will I find that perfect person who will complete me? And, and romance today, is really, it's become kind of a commodity, hasn't it? It's like this market system. Everybody's out there shopping, it's like you swipe left, swipe right, and you're just looking for that perfect person. 
and you're not going to settle for anything. Everybody's just shopping for this person, and you start to panic because you get a few more wrinkles, you get a few gray hairs, and gravity takes a hold, things start going south, and, and it just fills you with angst. Is it ever going to happen, right? Here's the, here's the really worrying part. This FOMO mindset when it comes to relationships, it doesn't go away necessarily when you get married. Because you get married, I've watched this lead some married people to some stupid things. I really have. Uh, I was, years ago, I was reading about this Christian couple who fell in love in high school. They were Christians. They fell in love in high school. It was their first love. And, and you know, the, the hormones were raging and the, the flames were burning and there was music in the air and it was just, everything was perfect. It was perfect, true love. You know, it was the one true love forever and ever and ever. Uh, perfect teenage love. Uh, and, uh, and until they broke up. And then they broke up. And of course, life goes on, right? Life goes on. And they both found someone else and they, they both ended up marrying other people. Now, here is where a particularly toxic Christian-y version of this romantic mythology steps in and becomes so destructive to people. Because the Christian version of this says, there is in the world one person who is your true soulmate. One person. And God has selected them since before the beginning of time. They've picked, he's picked them out. When I was leader years ago, when I was leader over our our young adult ministry, our college-age student ministry, uh, I couldn't believe how often I encountered this, this, this idea and this anxiety, right? That there's one person out there, there's one, and God's perfect plan involves you, out of all these seven billion people, you connecting with them. You better find them, or you're screwed, <laughs> right? And so, so this couple I was reading about, they both believed this. And so what happens is what so often happens with folks who believe this, they about a year or two into the wife's marriage with this other guy, she begins to wonder, is this God's perfect true love for me? Is this guy it? He doesn't seem that perfect. Right? <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> right. Shocking. And it wasn't like it was a bad marriage, you know, or there was any abuse going on or anything like that. It was just, you know, it, it wasn't the hot and heavy hormone-inducing, you know, love like back in high school, and she starts thinking, maybe I missed God's perfect love for my life. Maybe I missed my one shot at true love, and I blew it. The one that God picked out for me, maybe, maybe it's gone. And then she thinks, maybe it's not too late. Maybe I can get back on track. This really happened. Maybe I can get back into God's perfect plan. Maybe I can divorce this loser I'm with and get back with the guy I should have been with. And by the way, if you think God's perfect plan involves breaking covenants, you've misunderstood, you misunderstood God's perfect plan. Okay, um, that was a freebie. But this was her idea, and so she gets on Facebook and to find her old flame. Never a good idea, never a good idea. And guess what? She finds him. And guess what? He's three years into his marriage, and he's been thinking kind of the same thing, right? And he's got a kid, but he's got this feeling, and you can guess what happens. And even though he's got this child with this lady, they both leave their spouses, they run off together, they eventually get married, and they do not live happily ever after. Which happens, it turns out, in 80% of these cases. This is, this is a studied fact. 80% of these cases. And this is like this weird like, trend thing that's happening right now. It's this tragic pattern of people doing this. Uh, looking up old high school flames, trying to rekindle something that in studies show 80% of the time ends in disasters, broken families, blown up lives. 
And, and it's all driven by this, I've got one shot at true love. And I got to have it now. I got to experience everything this life has to offer right now. This is all there is, and then I'm dead. Right? It's this fear of scarcity. It's this fear of mortality that under, underlies. It drives people to do crazy things. Let me just say this. I won't charge you anything for this. We won't even take up, take up another offering for this. But, it, and it doesn't really have anything to do with Easter. I just want to say this. The idea that there is one true love. This is my big chance because we've never been so full. The idea that there is one true love out there, that God has picked them out for you way ahead of time, it's unbiblical. Can I just say that? It's unbiblical, it's irrational, and it's dangerous. Okay? Because it sets you up for an expectation that no human being can ever meet. They will always disappoint that expectation. Can I just give you the best marriage advice I've ever heard? Right? Like four weeks of counseling, marriage counseling, right here in, in one minute. Here you go. People are like, oh, I gotta find my I gotta find my true love. I gotta find my true love. You don't find true love. You create true love. Okay? Amen. You create true love. Love is something you create. You don't discover it. It's not magic. Here's the secret formula. You create it. And here's here's the formula for doing it. You create it through the joy and commitment of hard work. You create it through the joy and commitment of mutual submission to each other. You create it through uh, making the choice every day to, uh, to, to, to forgive quickly and to receive forgiveness quickly. You, you create true love by committing to never take each other for granted by forget, committing to always being honest with each other. And most importantly, you, you do it by committing to make Jesus the center of your marriage. Amen? That is how you create true love. Amen? Amen. Okay. No extra charge. We're not even going to take up an offering. Here we go. I'm just kidding. So let's go back to our relationships. Uh, next slide. This, this human condition, the, the fear of death. Some people, for some people, it means they can never take risks. They can never take risks because maybe things aren't perfect, but they have to hang on to what little they have. And so they settle for, for doing mediocre things, mediocre lives, when God may be calling them to some adventurous greatness, right? Following God in any significant way, it requires, it's going to require taking some risks, right? If you're Peter, you got to get out of the boat. If you're Abraham, he's going to call you to leave that, that place of comfort and, and go to the promised land where he's called you to. Right? It involves a risk. But if you are in bondage to fear, it's a risk you, you just can't take. Only a person who has gotten free from the need to scratch and claw and guard and protect and hoard, only that person can love indiscriminately the way Jesus calls us to love. And I'm telling you that fear is behind all of our sin it's behind all of our heartache. It's behind all of our bad choices. It's that fear that's always there. And taken to an extreme, it leads to mankind's worst capacity for violence. And it leads to our worst capacity for apathy toward others who are hurting. Taken to an extreme. Which brings us back to our, the original claim that we saw this morning in Scripture. That there is a love that casts out fear. This is what makes 
Next slide. The death and resurrection of Jesus. So beautiful, so important, so powerful for us. What the resurrection means, if we choose to believe it, if we choose to walk in this, we really believe it and live in this, it means that the one who holds the power of death has been defeated. And the power of death has been destroyed. The power of death has been destroyed. And there's no longer any sting in death. That death has been swallowed up in victory. Christ is risen. Amen? Amen. Somebody's listening. Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. So if we really choose to believe that, that, that he is risen indeed, if we choose to believe that and put our confidence in this, that he is risen, what it means is that we can be set free from our slavery to the fear of death. Imagine for a second, imagine what your life day to day would look like if you had no fear. Imagine your life without fear. For some people, it's such a part of our life. It's such, it's, it's who, it feels like our, part of our identity. And that is a lie of the devil. It doesn't have to be part of your identity. It's just always been there, right? Imagine your life without fear. His love has totally set us free, which frees us to be able to love and to live that bold, fearless way that Christ calls us to. Deciding to follow Jesus out of the grave, following his footsteps, means we get to follow him in resurrection. We get to experience resurrection. We get to have freedom from the power of death. There's no more scarcity mentality for us. No more FOMO. Amen? Say that. No more FOMO. (laughs) The resurrection means that this good news, and that's what the Bible calls it, good news, that perfect love was revealed on Calvary, and that love drives out all fear. It drives out all fear and all dread, and if we receive it, it loosens the the devil's grip on your life. He no longer gets to hold death over your head. He no longer gets to taunt you with the grave, right? Because it's lost its power over us. The grave has lost its power. Bring your worst. So so I get to be with Jesus. It's lost all of its power. There is no more fear. We no longer have to scratch and grasp for everything. We can get it out of life because we've been given everything by Jesus. He's given us the keys to a whole different kingdom a whole different kingdom, a whole different way of life. We've been offered joy and peace and freedom to not have to grasp for pleasures or to grasp after power structures or things like that. We don't have to, but now we are free to generously give to other people, to be his instruments of love to other people, instruments of peace, instruments of healing, which we can only do if we let go. We let go of the things we're grasping. That is how You live your very best life right now, free of fear, free of anxiety and worry, knowing that your Father loves you and He's got you and He will guide you into your every next step. The resurrection is the most powerful force in the universe. It's the most powerful force. It's it's the love that conquered the grave and the love that conquered the grave is, is stronger than the devil. It's stronger than sin, amen? It's stronger than violence. It's stronger than guns. It's stronger than missiles and ICBMs and ISIS and the IRS and any other acronym you can come up with. 
The love of Jesus is stronger than all of those things, right? It's stronger than what other people say about you. It's, it's stronger than the abuse other people have done to you. His love is stronger. He defeated death. He defeated death itself. His love is stronger than anything that's ever been done to you. Amen? Amen. His love is stronger than the almighty dollar. It's, it's stronger than the economy. It's stronger than terrorism or, or injustice or poverty. And yes, my friend, it is even stronger than the inevitability of death itself. You think a little thing like dying is going to separate you from God's love? Come on, son. His love is stronger. His love, praise God, it's stronger than hate. It's stronger than injustice. It's stronger than racism. It's stronger than bigotry. His love is the strongest force in the universe. It's absolutely unconquerable. It's absolutely undefeatable. It's indestructible, praise God. That is why, folks, when we trust in the power of the resurrection, and the Bible calls that living in Christ. It's a phrase used in the Bible. Living in Christ means we're, we're, we're living in that power. We're walking in his footsteps. We're following him out of the grave. Okay, Jesus, I'm coming too. Right? Living in Christ that has the power to drive out all fear. All fear. Just like the Apostle Paul, or Apostle uh, John wrote, perfect love drives out all fear. There is no fear in love. He said, whom the, the Son sets free is free indeed. Free. Just imagine that. This is not, a, this is not about religious stuff or like joining a church or being religious or anything like that. This is about being free. Freed from the need to scratch and grasp and free to live the way God, God wants us to. That's living the resurrected life, folks. Amen? Christ is risen. Amen. I'm telling you, when, you, when you're no longer afraid of, of what you might lose, you can start really experiencing all that God has in store for you. When you're no longer afraid of what you might lose, right? Then the devil's got nothing on you. He's like, well, I... What card do I play now? Next slide. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to, to come forward. And listen, if you're listening to this today, and maybe you're here this morning, you're listening by podcast, or you're listening, and, and, and maybe you're thinking, uh, you know, this, this has been great, but I don't really plan on, you know, coming back to church, or I'm not really that interested in Jesus or anything like that. That's, that's fine. And I thank you so much for coming and just celebrating with us today and being a part of this. We're just glad you were here today. But if you're here today, too, and you're thinking, Maybe, you know, I've never really imagined Jesus being a real part of my life. I didn't, I never thought of, like, church. It always seemed kind of irrelevant or kind of religious, nothing to do with real life. I just want to encourage you, have an open mind. Be open to the possibility that following Jesus is not about becoming more religious. It's not about becoming more moral or more churchy. That's not what Christ suffered, died, and conquered death, hell, and the grave so that, you know, you'd have the opportunity to be more churchy. That's not why he did it. Why, the reason why Jesus literally went through hell for you is because he is passionately, desperately in love with you. And he wants you free. That's why he did it. He, he loves you and he wants you free. So he did this. He wants you free to really live, free to have like a relationship with this God of the universe, a relationship where he actually speaks back to you and you feel his presence with you, 
free to live free of worry, free of fear. And the best part of all, you, you, you become free to then get to reflect his love to other people in a way that makes the whole world around you a better place. It makes everybody glad you're on the planet because you're reflecting his love. You become an instrument of generosity to others. When we surrender to Jesus, you know what? He doesn't require us to give up our personality. He wants you to be you. He doesn't require us to check our brain at the door. He doesn't require us to to start acting in some weird, perfect way or to learn some secret handshake or something like that. He does require one thing from us, and Scripture tells us this. He requires one thing, that is trust. He requires you to trust him. He doesn't even require you to like believe everything exactly like everybody else here believes. What he wants most is for you to trust him. I've talked about this before, but you know when when the Lord brought me into his, into his family because I had been away from him for a while. When he brought me back, I didn't understand a lot of stuff. I didn't like a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff in the Bible confused me. It looked weird. It looked backwards. I was mad at God about a lot of stuff. And you know, what he, you know what I felt like he told me? That's okay. I just want a relationship with you. That was the weirdest thing I ever heard. I was like, for real? He just wanted a relationship with you. He's like, yeah, we can work on all that other stuff. I just want a relationship with you. I love you. That's what God's saying to you. You don't have to understand it all. One of the things I love about this church, if you go here very long, you'll discover there's a lot of good churches. But one thing that makes this church pretty unique, I think, is... We're from a lot of different backgrounds here, from a lot of different faith traditions. We're from a lot of uh, different walks of life. And uh, we, we say one of the things that we really value here is unity, not uniformity, unity. And our unity is centered around following Jesus. We want you to look like Jesus, not look like us. You be you, you do you, I'll be me, and let's just both follow Jesus together. Amen. That's that, and I, I just want to extend that invitation to you. You have to be willing to hand him the controls of your life. Just trust him. Just trust him. And if you're interested in making that step, I encourage you to step out of your seat after the service is over. I'm not going to give you a big hard sell right here in front of everybody. Um, I, I have reasons why I don't do that uh, based on scripture. But I want you to step out of your seat when this is all over. Come on up and talk to these these folks up here. We call them prayer partners, but they're really just, they're filled with God's love and they would love to talk with you about whatever step on that journey you're at and help you take the next right step. They'd love to pray with you. They're, they're filled with faith. They're filled with trust. They've learned to trust God with the next right step. And they would love to walk with you in that next right step. Now, for the rest of you, if you're here today and you're, you're already like a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're one of our family here at uh, Generations, you're trying to walk in his footsteps, okay, that's great, but I challenge you. Listen, Christ followers, I challenge you. Keep to the path that he has laid out for us. Keep to the path. Keep to the path. Don't let the devil get you sidetracked on another path, a path of fear or greed or anxiety or apathy, because he will. He'll keep trying to sidetrack you every day of your life. Determine every day to increase your trust in Christ because his death and resurrection has freed you. It's freed you. Don't believe the lie. Don't, don't get sidetracked into the cares and the arguments 
and the battles of the, 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 the empire live as ambassadors of this kingdom. Never forget, you live, you might live, you might be a citizen of the empire. You live in the belly of the empire, but you're a true citizen. You're an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And that is your highest calling. That's your highest calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the death and resurrection of Christ that we are celebrating this weekend. And I thank you, Lord, that through this gift of grace to us, we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are welcomed into the body of Christ where we have a place and we have a purpose. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for those, Lord, here who have yet to commit their lives to you. Maybe they're thinking about it. Maybe they're just, they're just considering it right now. I thank, that, I thank you, Lord, that you would grant them the courage to say yes as they hear the voice of your spirit drawing them. And Lord, I pray for those who are here, who have already been a part of this body, but maybe they've been living beneath that freedom that you've purchased for us, Lord. I pray that you would cause us to see with fresh eyes. Help us to repent from getting sidetracked from our holy mission, our holy destiny that you've set before us. Help us to experience a fresh start, that we would experience our own resurrection this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Would you just stand to your feet as we're about to leave and just let me bless you for just one second. I want to bless you this morning. May you find yourself at the doorway of a tomb. And may it dawn on you, this tomb's empty. And may that realization fill you with such fearless, generous peace. A whole different way of living that everyone around you has no choice but to, to admit he must be risen. And may the peace of God be yours. Peace be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.